Say thanks again for joining us. I am uh, Ransom Ken, the pastor here, and we're starting a new series in Jude today. And so before I get us rolling, let me just uh, offer up a quick prayer for the sermon. Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity as a broken and sinful human being to come forward and be a mouthpiece for your truth. I pray that the things that I say this morning that do not bring you glory would fall to the ground and the things that, that are your intention for your people to hear would be planted deeply in their hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. Guide us through this new book, this new series. Help us to be drawn closer to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through it. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, Jude, the book of Jude, as I mentioned to the kiddos, um, it's concerned with truth. The book of Jude is concerned with truth, which is good. Uh, I think uh, we as 21st century folks think we have a corner on truth. In fact, if you type in what is truth to Google, um, it's, a, it's a rat's nest. Um, it's a rat's nest. You could, get, you could fall down the rabbit hole for a very long time if you do that. Um, I want to just talk about, uh, I mean, we, we're not going to talk about all the different views and, and different schools of truth. Uh, what we're going to start and finish in this series is the fact that Christianity holds to a particular view of truth. Um, some call it absolute truth. Uh, some people might call it uh, the correspondence theory, but the idea of Christianity is that there is a truth and it's out there and we believe in it. It's not something that we create inside of ourselves or something that we discover or something that, that changes. It, it corresponds with what is. And so a good way to think about Christian truth is it is what it is. Um, Christianity also attaches the idea of salvation to truth. Which is why, if you wonder why Christians are so dead set on, on holding to the truth, uh, it's because we believe it's important. It's an important in eternity. We tie the, the idea of truth and salvation specifically to Jesus Christ. Here's some verses that give us an idea of what we're talking about. Uh, three from John, one from Timothy. So John 1, it says this, the author, John the Apostle says, for the law was given through Moses, but what? Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Where does truth come from? The full expression of the truth comes through Jesus Christ. Later in John 8, Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. There's this idea that there is this body of information. It is what it is and if we know it and if we get it from Christ, it will set us free. John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So this idea of coming to the Father through Jesus, this is the salvation that Christianity talks about. The apostles continue this idea. Listen to this passage from 1 Timothy. The apostle Paul wrote this. He says, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. <laughs> we could just go on and on and on. Christianity holds a view that there is this body of information. It is from God. We received it through Jesus and through the truth, we are set free, we are saved. That's what Christianity believes. And so, 
Christianity is not a self-help philosophy. It's not what it is. And in fact, we cannot, you cannot fit Christianity as a subset of some other ism. It doesn't fit. Christianity is its own ism. So you can't take relativism or feminism or materialism or nationalism and fit Christianity up into its principles. Christianity is its own worldview. Its own worldview. Sorry, ladies, it's not a choose-your-own-adventure. That's what they call their, um, their, their events. Christianity is not a choose-your-own-adventure. It's one unique truth. It's a singular, solitary worldview. So this morning, hear this, Christian and non-Christian alike, Christianity is a unified, specific, and unique truth revealed to us by God. That's what Christianity is. And so Christianity is founded upon this thing that we call the one true gospel. And what Jude is going to show us in this series, what Jude's going to show us even just this morning, is that the church back then was in a fight for the purity of the gospel and church, we are still in that fight. We're still in it. The issue's not settled. We're not just in a fight outside the walls of the church with the world where we're trying to figure out who's right and who's wrong. There's actually a battle going on in all of our hearts for the truth of the gospel. And so we see in the beginning here, Jude calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ. He does his introduction. We get to verse three and we see that he actually had a different intention to write this letter. He's going to write this letter about something else. Look at this. Verse three, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, we'll stop there. So originally he planned to write a letter continuing their Christian education. They had already received the gospel. They had become a church. They were a gathering of believers that believed the same things, but something has gone awry. So instead of doing Christianity 201, he's back to 101. And so instead, he's addressing a problem. He says in the second part of verse 3, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith. He's addressing a problem and that a problem is an assault on the truth of the gospel in this church. Why divert? Why not just keep teaching and let it sort itself out? Because in the eyes of Jude, in the eyes of the apostles, in the eyes of Jesus, the gospel and its purity really, really matters. It really matters. Look at these words in verse 3. It, they, they communicate precedence and priority. So you have the word, I found it necessary. Necessary means absolutely required. To write appealing, so earnestly encouraged to action. And to contend for the faith, to make a strenuous labored effort. <laughs> so, so everything about what Jude is communicating in the first few verses here of this letter is urgency about the purity of the gospel. So the church here in, in that he's writing to, we're actually not sure exactly where it is, had been established by the truth of the gospel. And so these people were gathered, they shared beliefs. They, we call it the faith here. And it was delivered once for all by the apostles. So that's kind of the, 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 um, the way churches were established. The apostles went out, they brought the truth of the gospel. When people believed it, they gathered those people together and they formed a church. One objection to this you might hear 
from those who doubt the veracity of scripture might be, well, wait a second, these dudes just told people what was true? Sort of, <laughs> sort of. Uh, but he, let, let's put this in context. This is a, a good moment of, of understanding why context is important. Who Jude is, is important. Jude, it says in the introduction here, a servant of Jesus, the brother of James. James is the brother of Jesus, okay? So let's connect the dots. Jude is also the brother of Jesus. The brother of Jesus. Now, imagine your siblings in your mind, okay? Imagine your, if you don't have a sibling, think of like a close cousin or something, all right? Imagine your siblings and imagine one of your siblings came to you and said, hey, I'm the son of God, all right? Now listen, my sisters, I'm the youngest of three, my sisters love me. Okay, and I love them, but come on. If I told them that I was the son of God, they would think I was insane. And we would think the same thing about all of our siblings and all, if someone came to us and said, I am, I am God in the flesh, there would be no reason to believe them. You grew up with them. And so here, we have to answer a question. What has caused Jude to do two things? One, to call himself a servant of Jesus Christ, and in the end of this passage, to call Jesus our only master and Lord. There's nothing short of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that could cause that change. There's nothing short of that. It's not like Jesus was just a kind of a, a slick talker and Jude finally believed that his older brother was, was God in the flesh, his only master and Lord. No, something had to happen. And so the apostles are bringing this message because they witnessed something. They knew Jesus, they saw what happened, they saw his life, his death, his resurrection, and so they brought the essential message. I think it's important to know what that essential message is. And uh, if, you, if you mark down Philippians 2.11, um, doing some reading this week, uh, I, I learned this, I, I didn't know this before, the, the oldest creed that we know of is found in Philippians 2.11, and it's very short. Paul writes, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the earliest church Christian creed. That's the essential uh, uh, summary of, of the truth of the gospel. Everything that the gospel entails, Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, what that means, his love for us, his, his mastery over his people, who, he belong, who belongs to him, who he has control of, all those things are packed into Jesus as Lord. And so this church had received that message and whatever had happened between the time this church was established and Jude writing this letter, they had become under attack. Look at verse four. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. So what's happening? These essential truths were being manipulated. The truths of the gospel were being manipulated by folks who were non-Christians. So we've got to put ourselves in this context again. It's not like they had an interview with the elders and joined. Joining the church back then was a long process because it was so new and they believed so, such different things. And so somehow along the line, these people who had a, a different gospel in their hearts, a different gospel in their minds, false teaching, went through the process of becoming a member of this community, and now they were unraveling their agenda, kind of like a Trojan horse of the gospel. 
And so whatever was happening, whatever they were teaching, it was having success. You'll, we'll see this in verse five next week. It's not that Jude was writing preventatively. Something had happened in this church where they were believing something else. The importance of the gospel had been forgotten. The contents of the gospel was being either ignored or changed. And so we, we look back to this passage again and we ask ourselves, what does an attack on the gospel look like? First of all, it's sneaky. It's sneaky. Look at verse four. They had crept in unnoticed. Crept in unnoticed. When the gospel is under attack, it's not always a loud fight. Now, there are fights in our world over the gospel that are loud and they're, they're in our faces, but most often, most often the gospel is attacked by things that sound good. They sound good. This specific group had joined the church, they had entered the community unnoticed, and then they brought bad teaching. It snuck in. And so the church at this point, because this new group of people was teaching something else and they had accepted it, the gospel was not flowing in to their lives. And so think, of it, think about it this way. They had become a stagnant pool of misinformation about the gospel. Now, this doesn't happen overnight. These kinds of things don't happen overnight. They take time, little by little. We forget this, we forget that, we ignore that, we disagree with that. They had heard this and, and thought that, and then over time, the gospel was gone completely. In Colossians, Paul calls these kinds of sneaky attacks persuasive speech. They sound good, but what does he say about them? They are empty of God, which brings us to our next thing. They're ungodly. It says here, they were ungodly people, and so... While things may sound good to us, and they may even be using Christianese, as we call it, they may be using Christian language. If, if they are an assault on the gospel, they are empty of God. They do not bring him glory. They're not involving God honoring truth. I think we, when, when you believe in the type of truth that Christianity has latched onto when you replace one little piece of the whole truth for a lie, what happens? The whole thing becomes a lie. And so all the essentials packed into Jesus as Lord, none of them are expendable, none of them can be exchanged. We'll look at this next week, but the fact that Jesus is savior and judge, it's a fact. We can't replace either one of those things. And so an attack on the gospel is sneaky, it's ungodly, and it's characterized by either sinful excess or denial of Jesus' lordship. Look at the beginning, the middle of verse four. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. Now this doesn't only mean sexual sin, it might include it, but what it means is uh, going, um, uh, not tethering in our sinful nature. So it could, sinful excess here could mean uh, not fighting against sin. It could also mean jumping through hoops to make whatever sin is in our life uh, that we're practicing okay to do, Jumping through hoops to justify our sin, both of these things are, can be considered sinful excess. And so this idea that Jesus is Lord, it includes every area of our lives. When you hear this truth that Jesus is master and Lord, anything that says in any part of, of our lives, uh, no, not that part, or no, not that part, it's, it's pushing against the gospel. It's an attack on the gospel. 
enemies of the gospel in this day, and I would say ours too, they'd rather Jesus be a friendly advisor and not a master. Friendly advisor. Wow, Jesus loves us, that's for sure. And, and he doesn't like when we do things like hurt other people, but if I'm not hurting other people, he's okay with it. What is that doing? That's replacing the master Jesus with the master me. <laughs> that's what that's doing. Because if we have a friendly advisor and not a master, he'll make a way for us to live how we want to live. That's super convenient, but it's not the gospel. Which brings us to the next thing, the next thing that categorizes an attack on the gospel. It denies the lordship of Jesus. It tries to provide an alternative leader for us. Let me summarize it this way. Listen, being a good person is not the gospel. Being sincere about what you believe is not the gospel. Living my own truth is not the gospel. Coming to church <laughs> and life groups as some kind of penance or like a way to prove something about how you know God or how you love God, that's not the gospel, church. That's not the gospel. Anything short of throwing ourselves in utter dependence upon Jesus Christ's life and death and resurrection, anything short of that is not the gospel. It's not the gospel. Anything short of Jesus as Lord and Savior of our lives is not the gospel. So this church was under attack. They're in a battle for gospel truth. And I want to pose to us this morning that nothing much has changed for us. We are in a battle for gospel truth. For gospel truth. We have the same issue. We tend, even as God's people, to forget, to substitute, to ignore, to adapt, to, to, to change the gospel message. It's a tendency. Why? Because our sinful hearts are still alive. And so what do we need? We need a steady gospel flow in and out of our lives daily. We need it. We need it. You see, when reading scripture is not a part of our life, this is a recipe for that stagnant pool that I was talking about, okay? Think about this. If we're not receiving truth from where God gave us truth, it couldn't be more simple than he gave it to us. When we're not receiving from that, we have to at best guess about who God is. We have to guess who God is. If we say we're Christians and we're not receiving the truth, we have to guess. I like how Dietrich Bonhoeffer describes the original sin. I think it gets right at this. He was talking about Adam and Eve and what happened in the garden. He says, they went behind the given word of God and procured their own knowledge of God. Think about how that interaction with, with Satan went. Did not God say? And they were like, well, maybe he did. And then they went past what he said and found their own thing. We see how that went for them and us. If we aren't taking in truth, we're making it up. We're making it up. And so what are we called to do? What's the answer to actively, urgently labor for an influx of the gospel in our individual lives? We need it. 
Inevitably, church, the way our world is designed, lies will creep in, and we need to have the information to, to say no to them. And the more lies come in, the longer we go without that influx, the more stagnant of a pool of misinformation we become. We need the word of God. We need it. We need to ris- listen, listen, there we go. Um, that's like Jonah and the ark. Um, read and listen to the word of God. Or as the kids are saying, listen to it, right? Um, we need to talk about the word with other believers. Talk about it. We need to be taught the word and teach the word. Listen, we as reformed folks, we have to accept this. We love checklist Christianity, right? Oh, I read Peter once. Good. <laughs> I, I read about uh, the, the doctrine of salvation once. Good to go. All right, what's next? More, more, more. Jude is telling us sometimes we just need to go back to the basics. We need the nutrients of the gospel. Now, I'll say this, things have changed for us. It's not the exact same as this church that Judah's writing to because the battle back then was centralized on the church. That's where it happened. I think in our day and age, this battle has been decentralized from the church. We fight this sneaky enemy in our homes and on our phones. That's where we fight this enemy of misinformation and lies. And... We actually invite these false teachers into our lives on a regular basis based on what we're intaking. We're intaking. We're always intaking something. Do we not understand that? Everything we read, everything we watch, everything we listen to, it's an intake. And if you think about this, if we get to the place where we're only intaking entertainment or, or, or the New York Times or whatever it is and there's never Bible intake, this is gonna be a struggle. This is a recipe for stagnant waters. We're bombarded with alternatives to the gospel every minute of every day. Bombarded. And in fact, when false teaching arrives in the church, because it does, guess who brings it? We do. We bring it. We bring it with us. Talk about a Trojan horse. And so this morning, what are we learning? What am I learning? I'm reminded that the truth is not hidden, folks. It's not a Rubik's Cube or something where we got to figure out the puzzle to unlock it. God gave it to us directly and simply. We have the truth. We have it in our hands. We're learning this morning that the truth really, really matters. We need it. There's urgency to our need of the truth. And the truth isn't a la carte. It's a singular truth unit. The truth is that we were created by God. He is master and Lord. That, that sin caused a separation between those things. Between our master, our creator, our father, and us. That in that separation, only one thing remedies that. The redemption that is found through the blood of Jesus Christ. And... Not only that, the journey to become more like him, that, that destination of seeing him face to face is empowered by God himself through the Holy Spirit. 
This is the truth of the gospel and every part of it is relevant to every part of our lives. In church, we are called to a strenuous and labored effort to hold on to the purity of the gospel, not just against other people and what they say, but right here in our hearts. And so I think it's important this morning that we admit, first of all, that a battle exists and we pick up arms. A battle exists. And and the question I have for us is, are we picking up the sword of the Lord for that battle? I know it's a kind of a cheesy image, but like, are we running into battle unarmed? (laughs) I'll hurt you with my words. (laughs) Yeah, I'm looking at Will, I'm not sure why. Um, I'll just hurt you with what I think. No, listen, we, we have a weapon and that weapon's the gospel and it's in the word of God and the Bible. We need scripture. So listen, not on a condemning note, on a note of pastoral concern, on a note of brothers and sisters in Christ telling each other what we need. If you are here this morning, or if you're listening online, and you are in a place, you you believe in Jesus, you love Jesus, you know that he forgives your sins, you're thankful for that, You, you, you know that you need Jesus, but reading the Bible is just not part of your life, listen, there's things we can do, and I'm gonna give you one. I printed off about 50 of these, Um, uh, they are going to be located they look like this they're going to be located on the the slate table as you go out these double doors into the circular mirror there's about 50 of them I'll also email out um, I'll email out uh, this this afternoon to our members and attenders but listen this is a a schedule for the, the CBR journal the community bible reading is what it's called okay and I have found uh I've not found another reading plan that's, uh, that comes with it as little condemnation as this, okay? It's two chapters a day, Old Testament, New Testament. If you follow the plan all the way through, you'll get to the Old Testament in three years, the New Testament once a year. Here's what I'll say. Grab one of these and start. Now, if you miss five days, if you miss 20 days, just read the day that it's scheduled for. Don't worry about catching up. Like that, that's the weight that we feel like, oh, I haven't read in five days. What am I gonna do? I gotta read five days. Listen, just read the word. Scripture is not a quick fix. You don't read the word and suddenly your marriage gets better. It's not how it works. You don't read the word and suddenly you're not depressed. You don't read the word and suddenly all your problems go away. The word is this long-term nutrition plan for our spiritual health. We need it long term. We need it all of our lives in every area of our life. And so pick up one of these calendars, talk to your life group, talk to your friends and ask someone to read with you. That's all all it takes. Read with you, talk about it. Again, you're not gonna talk and meet once and be like, wow, life changed. But what's gonna happen over time is you're going to know the gospel. It's gonna flow into your life. It's gonna bring refreshing truth that you share with others. We need the word of God. We need the gospel in our lives every day. Church, we need it. We need that steady flow. 
And no area of the Christian life is filled with more condemnation than reading or not reading our Bibles. But here's what I want to tell you this morning. God is not vindictive. God's not vindictive. And we can see this because he invites us, you guessed it, to the Lord's Supper, all right? The qualifications of coming and eating bread and drinking juice does not require a resume of how much you've read the Bible this week or how much you've prayed this week or how many people you've shared the gospel with this week. The the prerequisite is you need Jesus. You need Jesus. And if you need Jesus, you come and eat. Our needs are met by a God that loves us, that forgives us and gives us his truth. And it's always there waiting for us. If God was vindictive, he would have taken this away. Jerusalem burned in 70 AD and God could have easily made the Bible burn up with it. Okay? He could have done that. He didn't. He gives it to us in our native language with study materials and people who know it and teach it. God is generous. So this morning, if you know for a fact you're an active sinner, man, I am. If you know for a fact the truth that there's only one way past that problem and that is Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, if you've made that profession, if you've been baptized, God and his generosity says, come and eat. You have nothing. That's okay. It's free. So come this morning. Come and receive grace. And honestly, church, in the quiet, all of us should pray this. In that quiet moment while we're distributing the elements, waiting to eat, let's all pray for a deeper hunger for the word of God. Let's pray for it. We need its refreshment. For those of you here that do not know Jesus, do not believe he's the singular truth, do not believe you have a problem that needs to be overcome, the Bible makes it clear. This dinner, this dinner, this supper is not for you. Dinner, I'm from New England, there it is. Um, Sunday dinner. Um, it's not for you. And it's okay to not come and eat. Don't do it because of peer pressure. Do it because it means something. If it doesn't mean something, don't come. Let's take a few moments and pray. Let's ask the Lord for that hunger. And then I will bless the elements and we'll receive the Lord's Supper together. Father in heaven, thank you for this sacrament. Thank you for the bread and what it represents the broken body of Christ. Thank you for this cup and what it represents, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you for your Holy Spirit and by the power of the Holy Spirit, the very presence of Christ here with us this morning. And so I pray that these things would be nutrients to our souls. They'd be motivations to our pursuit of you, Lord, that from this moment of of 100% unmerited favor, the grace of the Lord's Supper, we would be motivated to labor toward the truth. 
I pray, Lord, that each one of us in this church would become free-flowing, healthy pools of gospel knowledge, that we would know the saving truth of Jesus, and it wouldn't only flow into our lives, but it would flow out of our lives to everyone around us. We too pray for our world, Lord, who is bent on finding any other truth than the one presented by Jesus. And I pray that you would help us to be a tool, a fixture in this community, and that we would be a light to our brothers and sisters who are just that without even knowing it right now. May we see people come to know Jesus. May it begin by us simply taking in gospel truth. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.